Cheers, Worcester. It's February the 20th, 2018, and this is 508, a show about Worcester. Today we're talking about housing, transit, and maybe even net neutrality. I'm Mike Benedetti, and this is Brendan Milliken. How's it going, Mike? It's going good, Brendan. How are you? Well, I'm sitting a little bit closer to you than I normally do when well, we do this you know, show, and I just want to make sure you're okay with that. I'm I'm good. Why don't okay. we uh, Why don't we Why don't we move the camera a little bit? Yeah, we can do that. There we both are. That was great. That yeah. was great. We just moved the camera a little bit. Yeah. I don't think it helped. Um, no. Uh, we're broadcasting on Worcester's Unity Radio, 0.0000001 gigawatts of power on 102.9 FM, cable casting on WCCA-TV 194, and podcasting at pieandcoffee.org. You can email us at pieandcoffee at gmail.com, and our call-in number is 508-471-5265. And a special shout-out to the mighty Hank Stoltz, who is working the phones and engineering today's show. Possibly we're going to have a guest today, Brendan. Possibly we're not. <laughs> Our guest isn't here yet. Um, how are you doing? I am fantastic. And, uh, you know, other than sitting close to you, I wanted to point out to anyone who's just listening at home, Mike is wearing both a long sleeve shirt and a sweater today. And today is probably the warmest day that we've had, definitely the warmest day we've had since the uh, the start of the new year. And uh, I'm just doing whatever it takes to look good, man. You look fantastic. Billy Crystal said it. It's better to look good than to feel good. You know, Mike, I had um, I know you've got all sorts of things you want to run through. Oh, man. I had one thing I wanted to throw out there that I, I completely forgot to bring with me the details on, so I'm mostly going to make this up. But I, right before I left uh, my office this morning, mm-hmm. um, what's his name? William Shatner is coming to Worcester. Did Why you know is that happening? They're doing a screening of The Wrath of Khan at the Hanover Theater, and then William Shatner is going to do a talk following the screening of The Wrath of Khan. Star Wars star William Shatner, you'll remember him from the original Star Wars trilogy. He's going to be in Worcester. When's this happening? <laughs> You're such a jerk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, it's, uh, I don't know. That's because I left all the details in my office. But I know tickets get to go on sale on uh, February 23rd. That's very, that's very, that's very exciting. That's yeah. very exciting. I know a lot of people in Worcester love Star Trek. Yeah. That's a cool thing to be, have happening. You know, there's no city council meeting this week. So I'm just kind of, I just kind of feel empty inside. Um, I was eagerly awaiting the email you usually send me with all of the things that the council is going to discuss. It never came through, and I just kind of no assumed that you were mad week. at me or that you had written me off or there's, input. It's actually because they're not meeting. There's no council meeting this week. There's okay. two There's two news stories this week in Worcester that are probably worth discussing. One of them because it is um, – actually, I guess both of them are actually newsworthy. It's not just because people chose to write about them. One of them is about the uh, WRTA budget, mm. our bus budget, which is an actual thing that people have written actual articles about because the budget is being kicked around. Um, I'm feeling somewhat frustrated about discussing this. If we can just get to press criticism for a second, because I read a lot of articles about this, and they're all terrible, <laughs> uh, Worcester journalists. Like, you have a lot of numbers in there, and I think you cut and paste them from someplace because there's never anybody who's just like, here's a paragraph which is the equivalent of a balance sheet or paragraph, which is the equivalent of a profit and loss statement or sure. whatever. Um, and also, I can also put out some complaints this week to the people who, um, to the city clerk, I guess, would be responsible for this, which is that uh, I cannot find the minutes that have this budget proposal in them. I cannot even find a notice of this meeting on the city website. I think because the meeting was last week, and now they're in the process where they're putting up the um, the annotated version of the of uh, the agenda from that, the agenda plus the minutes. Sure. And in that time frame, since there's no longer a pre-meeting agenda 
and there's not yet a post-meeting agenda with notes, there's nothing. doesn't exist. There's nothing. So as of today, there's no budget. There's no WRTA. There's nothing, at least as far as the city's website is concerned. The only thing that I saw in this article um, – that one that you're mostly referring to here, uh, this week's issue. Oh, of, I'm compl- uh, I'm referring to all articles. But there were, all the articles that have there was do some bad coverage job with the of that board meeting. Yes, that there was, was interesting. Yes, because there was. it it seemed like the 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 crux, the, you know, the takeaway from that meeting was essentially the board sitting back and everyone who had comments, uh, good comments, you know, irrelevant comments. The board basically said, yeah, we got nothing. Our hands are tied. Our hands are tied. But I, to your point, I think there was also no articulation or no one really kind of getting into the weeds on what actually is tying their hands, which is important stuff to understand, too, because it's not like Worcester exists in, in a vacuum, right? Like if there are, say, sure. federal regs that need to be ironed out so that we can make some changes. Well, thankfully, we've got a congressperson. You know, there are even two senators here in the yes. Commonwealth that yes. might be able to help us out. Um, if there's state and local regs, you know, like. I don't know, maybe we know some people in Beacon Hill. Uh, you know, maybe there are some local elected officials who could get into the weeds and maybe change things up on a local level. This, you know, usually what this looks like is like the city, you know, maybe the city council wants to remove a bench. And for <laughs> some reason, removing that bench is in violation of a state law mm-hmm. or rarely a federal law. They do what's called a home rule petition. They put, they go through a whole thing. They're like we we all vote that our local con- our local state representative pushed through a thing at the state level allowing us to remove this bench or whatever it is. The city council does this all the time, basically around things as consequential as moving benches. Somehow though, there are state regulations that are keeping us from having a functional modern bus system. But we have I have never seen anybody propose a home rule petition around getting rid of the state regulations that keep us from having awesome buses that yeah. we can afford. Well, and it, it, it is sad in, in a weird sort of – maybe it's irony, maybe it's hypocrisy. I can never really keep the, the two uh, straight from uh, a strictly definitions perspective. But um, in a city where we are constantly complaining about either a lack of parking or increased volume of traffic on the roads, mm-hmm. like here we actually have it's, – it's not like a hypothetical thing. There's actually this existing framework for public transportation that could allevi- alleviate a lot of the pressures on both of those things that people are constantly complaining about – but there's laws, Brendan. But it never actually enters those those two conversations always exist in these separate silos, right? Like over here we'll have a public transportation conversation that usually devolves into people complaining about Uber, uh, and then over here we'll have a conversation about how we don't have enough parking, uh, or there's too much traffic, or we need to install 500 new uh, crosswalk lights or whatnot because right. people are getting picked off in intersections constantly. Those two things go hand in hand, and it's like if we. I don't know, man. That's an interesting. We do we do install a tremendous number of new crosswalk lights every year. So and some of those are to come into come into uh, um, compliance with you know in, increased regulations on what a crosswalk looks like. But we could definitely do a thing where we say we're you know maybe you can't do this politically, but you could do this. You could say I I propose a moratorium on all new crosswalk construction for the next year, and for us to take every one of those budget items that would be a new crosswalk and put that money into the buses. <laughs> well, you know, and you could say, and maybe we maybe we save pedestrian lives by doing that. And I, I'm happy you said that because I was about to apologize uh, and acknowledge that I, I'm well aware that I'm sitting next to somebody who who whose primary mode of transportation is walking. So I'm not I'm, being yeah. dismissive of our crosswalks. Let me just say I'm not the walkingest <laughs> man in Worcester because yeah. that would be Joe Fenerell, obviously. Mm-hmm. But next to Joe Fenerell, who's a good friend of mine, I'm the second most walkingest man in Worcester. I know all about the crosswalks, Brendan. I know all about the buses, Brendan. Let me ask you this question yeah. then. I, oh, yeah. And then I'll let you go back to your – because you've got stuff. 
When it comes to Worcester crosswalks, I've no, I did notice uh, in, say, comparison to, say, Boston or New York or whatnot. Our guest is outside. Hold on. I'm going to go get our guest. I'm just going to keep talking Van, to everybody Van. else and, uh, you know, whatever. Well, so I, what I was going to ask Mike, and he's – we'll, uh, we'll answer for him, is in our crosswalks here in the city of Worcester – Hank, you and I are going to talk about this. So we, we install a new crosswalk. It tends to be a 20-second uh, timer, right? You go to Boston or you go to New York, they almost always tend to be 10-second uh, timers. And I've always been trying to figure out, like, what is it about Worcester that we feel it takes this much more time for the chicken to cross the proverbial road uh, and the long-term impact that actually has on the volume of traffic that you see? I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you two things. One is whether lights are flashing or not, crossing down by Union Station mm. and going across that square. I think you are taking your life in your yeah. hands as you are at, at many places. The second is is that if I was sight impaired, mm -hmm. with all those beeps and everything, I'm sure that they give you a, a course, and it is because I am a sighted person. Yeah. But it seems as if there is this lag time before the beeps start, and then what the beeps. I'd be very, I'd be concerned about that as well. I don't know if that goes along with the 20 seconds. Or it not, actually totally does because when I was working concerned. downtown most recently, there was always this funny thing where if you're if you're standing down by the um, the intersection of uh, Main Street and uh, and Front, not Front, Main Street and um, yeah, Front Street. All right. The beeps uh, that um, go off on that crosswalk, they tend to um, they they tend to, to to ricochet off the buildings. So you'll actually be hearing the alerts for uh, folks that are, are are blind from like down the street. You won't actually be hearing them anywhere. Um, Close by. Mike, you Did I just pull my? I was going to say we are certainly still in, and we are certainly still broadcasting. Why don't we Hello. take a quick break, and we'll uh, get our microphones <laughs> back. All right. Thrill of a lifetime. Get your tickets and come in. Killers of the Amazon can devour a cow in a matter of seconds. Can leave nothing but the bare bones. First time shown in your city and you may never have the chance to see it again. Alive, 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 the deadly piranhas. $10,000 reward if not absolutely alive. Never before shown and you may never again have the chance to see it again. The most terrifying flesh eaters from the deep. Brendan Melican and myself, Michael Benedetti. I, I'm always pleasantly surprised when you uh, spring something like that on me, Mike. Alive, I have no idea what happened. Alive, alive. Wasn't sure where that was going to go, and I wasn't even sure <laughs> if I was uh, safe at that moment in time. But that was beautiful. Thank you for that. And also, I can confirm on today's show, another one of the deadly flesh eaters from the deep, uh, Holmes Wilson, will be on uh, later. I thought he was already here. What happened? He's to him? he's uh, he's uh, on the he's on the phone. He's, he's still doing, in makeup. He's probably doing an interview with somebody more important. I understand. Prioritize. Um, I would be doing this. We were thing. talking about public transportation until home shows up. Sure. That could be in a minute. That could be in twenty minutes. We well, could talk about heroin. Sure. Talk about heroin. I mean, the other the other news story of the week. I mean, we we could roll back to public transportation and talk about solutions, but. Did you talk about solutions yet? No, we, I was. I don't, well, then let's not do. Okay, well, we're already. I feel like we're in. We're in a bitchy, non-productive mood so far on today's show. We should keep that going. And whenever that we crash from that, then we start to talk about solutions. That's like Fair Plan enough. B. No, I think that's the right right approach. Um, this is a this is a, a news story because the ownership on a building has changed lately. And Mass Live has an awesome article today called Heroin Squatters and Absent Owners, How One Worcester Developer Plans to Save the City's Worst Property. It actually um, is a really great story. It's You're a great not... story. 
This is about 1 Quincy Street, which is uh, also known as 85 Chatham Street. How is that, Mike? What? How is that? How can one place be two places? I don't know. I mean, it's known as 85 Chatham Street. I think it might actually be one on the front of the building, okay. but the city knows it is 85 Chatham Street. This is a building I walk. This is a building in my neighborhood. I walk around, I walk past this building all the time. I know people who live in this building, uh, and I have been following the dramas around this building mostly from my neighborhood crime watch. Um, I can just read. I can just read a couple of the relevant paragraphs from this great article by Dan Glown at Mass Live. Uh, he said th this guy, uh, Ed Murphy, just bought the building. He closed the deal this month, paying $425,000, less than half the building's $975,000 list price. And regardless of the vacancies, vacancies, vagrancy, and basement drug deals, Murphy is investing in upgrades and believes he can make it work. I honestly don't think the property is that bad, just improperly managed, Murphy said. We're, going to, we're just going to properly manage it. In 1998, the property's owner, Chatham Street Reality Trust, received $388,000 in public financing from the Massachusetts Housing Partnership Fund Board in exchange for agreeing to an affordable housing covenant. The building would be dedicated to providing housing to low- and very low-income families, making a maximum of 65% of the area's medium income. In 2006, the city began foreclosure on the property for unpaid taxes. Chatham Street Realty Trust came to an agreement with the city later that year, but in 2008, both the bank holding the mortgage and the city's tax authorities filed new foreclosure complaints. The city told that sold the tax title to the property to Plymouth Tax Services LLC, who in 2015 sold it to Propel Financial One LLC. This is a Texas company that specializes in this business. It has not proved responsive as city officials t tried to force them to properly maintain the building. Uh, the cooperative at One Quincy made a Worcester Telegram and Gazette list of troubled properties in 2016. The next year, 20, Worcester Magazine named it the worst property in the city. Uh, the trend continued through 2017. According to housing inspection records reviewed by Mass Live, the property was the subject of 19 separate complaints last year, ranging from the presence of squatters and unsecured doors to a lack of heating oil and uncollected trash. So um, it's interesting to me that this article is framed a bit as like, now this is going to change because it got sold. This sort of reminds me of um, Worcester journalists' bizarre uh, Groundhog Day-like uh, articles about the um, South Worcester Industrial Park, which for <laughs> 17 years, as Nicole Postel once demonstrated, every year on the anniversary of whatever Groundhog Day-like day it was, there would be an article in the Telegram and Gazette which would say, the, the blighted South Worcester Industrial Park. Nobody loves that place, but... Now something has happened and it's all going to get fixed. And then, they, you know, 12 months later, the blighted Southwestern <laughs> Industrial Park. But now, and, and this is in recent years, finally slowly begun to get uh, de-brownfielded and developed. Um, I mean, like, I feel like this article, you know, starts off by being like, everybody who's owned this building has done a terrible job managing it. But now <laughs> this guy is going to do it. I hope that he does. If there is something to be said for that, the big difference is you're going from uh, two different parties that are not from the region that were really just uh, property management firms that really aren't interested in property management but title mm -hmm. acquisition uh, to you know conceivably local ownership, which it, yes. it strikes me as probably one of the biggest problems we have in housing in general in the city for or, or uh, non uh, own, uh, 
you know, uh, property. absentee landlords, absentee yeah, management, it, it, the absentee management that, that, and that's a relatively new thing to Worcester. You only have to go back a generation or two before you find out, uh, our three deckers were almost entirely occupied by, uh, multiple generations of one family or, uh, various wings of one family. O owner occupancy rates were, were never really an issue. Never mind, yeah. uh, rates of owners being in a region, you know, like close enough that like mail might get to them in a day or two, um, that's at least one nice change. You've got somebody finally who is could potentially be responsive to both the neighborhood uh, and the city, as opposed to propel financial services, right? Like what's the likelihood of them to come coming to a neighborhood watch <laughs> meeting uh, to hear complaints about squatting or- Well, I can maybe? tell you, I can tell you a little bit about this because like I said, like this is in my neighborhood mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I've lived in that neighborhood a long time. I've only been going to the neighborhood watch meetings about for about a little over a year, I guess now. Uh, both as a neighborhood resident and as someone who, because of my civic activism, mm -hmm. am responsible for some parts of the neighborhood. Um, those neighborhood watch meetings are great. Mm -hmm. They're not super well attended, but the people there are a dream team. It kind of reminds me of one of the one of my favorite pound-for-pound pound activist organizations I was ever working with in Worcester was called Real Solutions. And mm -hmm. this is something we worked a lot around um, the treatment of the poor, especially treatment of very, very poor people like homeless people in Worcester. Uh, and it was kind of a thing where, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks, you would get a group of six people together to talk about what was going on and strategize. But it would be like just the right people. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be you would have like somebody from legal assist, like the president of legal assistance would be there and the president of this would be there. And like other superstars like myself would be there <laughs> or like Kevin Kassen would be there. And so it would be the kind of thing that you would develop a certain level of trust and you could just kind of like resolve things quickly. There wouldn't have to be a lot of stuff around like, oh, let's email this guy, let's email this guy and see what they say. So these, are, do we need to go to a break here soon? Oh, are we having people trying to prank call the show? If we are, we should let them through. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can just keep babbling about how much I love neighborhood watch meetings. I love these neighborhood watch meetings, Brendan. It's like the politicians who represent the neighborhood are there, the state rep, the, the city councilor. It's people from the code department. It's people from the DA's office. It's people who are property owners. It's people who have complaints. But it's that's me. the key, though, when we're talking about blighted properties in the cities. I think for, for the last couple decades, the majority of properties that are going to hit that big hit list every year, whether it be Worcester Magazine or the Telegram of blighted properties, the, the ownership of them isn't going to be something that's responsive. Is yes, it to, yes. The fact that this guy is willing, and I think it's probably similar to some extent with the uh, the Albion. The, the Albion, road, right. At least you've got somebody who's willing to start off the, the new conversation with a news story, or like being featured, like their <clears> picture's <throat> out there, right. their, their name is in the lead. Uh, we, we all know who they are now. I mean, that's a right. pretty good way to open up a new conversation it about a, a problem building. It's, you said you're familiar with this one here, and you said you know you I, people who live there. Like, familiar. I'm more familiar than anyone who wrote articles about this, yeah. but I'm not familiar with this. But I mean, for from your perspective, are the people that you know living there that like without ratting anybody out, are like are they on the squatting side, or are they because they, they made it sound like there's very I don't know. few legitimate. Tenants I know there. people. I mean, I know people who have pretty uh, questionable housing situations. Mm -hmm. Nobody who I know who has a questionable housing situation is based out of that yeah. building. The people who I know who live in that building, are people who live there, are legit. This is definitely one of the buildings in the neighborhood. I think there might be only a couple where there's a lot of, um, you know, people living in the stairwells, people living in the basement, people ripping the doors off and, yeah. you know, doing drugs in places and, and whatever. Um, and this is definitely a problem for a neighborhood whenever you've got some business buildings like this. One thing I'll say is that even though I can be cynical, and this is maybe where my grouchiness and cynicism I thought that was my was role. Off. You're the cynical one now? I was cynical at the beginning, but I'm starting to get less interested in that as the show goes on. <laughs> like, I have seen 
the non-Groundhog Day situation happened in these crime watch meetings over and over in the year plus that I've been going to them, which is that uh, there's problems with the property. Sure. And people are like, oh, there's problems with the property. And for a couple of months, it's like, come on, come on. It's more and more problems with the property. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And then the problems start to get resolved, and they start to get resolved, and then the problems get resolved. And yeah. I've seen multiple problem properties have their problems resolved in just the year that I've been there. So I totally believe that, yeah, like if this management guy is willing to send some people down to these crime watch meetings and get involved with talking to the city, these problems could go away. So obviously, you might be more familiar with this from a neighborhood perspective, but what do you think the tone and the tolerance in the neighborhood is going to be? So this guy obviously has some plans for the building. He's yeah. like, he is under agreement with the city at least till 2028 and, to keep and, it affordable housing. And we should say something which I feel like the articles have not really been clear on. That I think this is a three-story and I believe a 16-unit building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a sizable building. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good thing for the neighborhood overall if if they start uh, you know raising the bar in terms of uh, accommodations. Yeah, there. absolutely. And I don't think that, yeah, I mean I feel like this building is to me is not indicative of the neighborhood. Yeah. This is not like I mean this neighborhood is not like. Yeah. This is like one crazy building in the midst of otherwise non-crazy buildings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I would just wonder like how far we go before it, with this building in particular before we find ourselves in a, another um, gentrification conversation. That uh, already, I'm sure already we're going to be in a gentrification conversation. The idea that people, I mean, you know, I am very supportive of people having a place to live and very against. Spent a lot of my life working against homelessness, but yeah, once you start t talking about oh, we're going to try to have people not be able to rip the door off the building anymore. There's definitely some people on a, on a certain fringe who their hackles go up. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to be – I think the neighborhood as a whole is who not Who are you that hanging way. out with that has uh, moral opposition to doors, Mike? You know, Doors I, are pretty useful. I, I bet I even, if I turn to my life, my, my left here and, and start talking to Holmes, I bet even Holmes is going to agree with me that doors are pretty awesome. Right, Holmes? <laughs> You don't have any huge issues with doors, do you? Yeah, not, not usually, no. Yeah, They're see, pretty, the battery is dying on our technology. camera. No, we don't have a long USB cord, do we? I don't have no. I, I just have this this open-ended question about what is happening in your universe with doors. Oh, let me tell you. Um, how's our battery dying, already? This is crazy. Um, I want to welcome to the show Holmes Wilson. Hi, Holmes. Hi. Holmes Wilson is co-founder of Fight for the Future, a nonprofit digital civil liberties organization that first gained renown in the fight against SOPA in 2011, uh, and is a internationally known internet activism legend. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. And you're wearing your free beaver shirt. I am. That was one of the first cool things that Piper the Future did back in the day. Get Justin Bieber out of jail. <laughs> yeah, it was a campaign we did um, because there was some legislation on the table for, supported by the um, motion picture lobby that was in, attempting to just make it basically shift the balance around copyright laws to make it so that it was so the, the rules were so strict about posting copyrighted material online that basically anything could count as copyright infringement even criminal copyright infringement and um you know it's the kind of thing where there was one law that said if you post copyrighted material to a video streaming site you could go to prison for five years you know and this could be you singing somebody else's song in a youtube video or something like that something and that's really something, innocuous and that's something that justin bieber had sort of done his early promotion by yeah yeah so we were covers on youtube yeah so we were thinking about like well what's the best example of someone who has totally violated this law in a completely innocuous way that everybody knows and the best example was bieber because he mm -hmm. came up like the way he got discovered was singing chris brown and usher songs mm -hmm. um to karaoke uh, backing tracks that were probably copyrighted on youtube <laughs> um you know when he was like eight or something sounding awesome and he uh and and, and that's what got him famous and 
this was a law that literally would have put anyone who did that or would have made anyone who did that subject to crazy penalties and could literally have put him in jail. And so we made him the mascot for the for the campaign and made the campaign all about free Bieber and made a site about with pictures of Justin Bieber behind bars, wearing a jumpsuit, you know, with face tattoos and all this stuff. And and um, and made a joke out of it. But in a serious way, we were trying to explain um you know how what the collateral damage could be of of changing these relatively arcane copyright laws um and uh the campaign worked we got like 80,000 signatures on a signatures on a petition when some awesome YouTubers picked it up and um and then someone asked Bieber about it on a radio show a show maybe not unlike this one a radio show in Washington DC mm-hmm. Bieber's on promoting his tour and sure um, nothing like this one. <laughs> and that the host asks Bieber, "Hey, what about this this law that would 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 make it a crime to to sing songs on YouTube without permission?" And and he just went off. He said, "This law is ridiculous. Whoever, whatever senator is proposing this law should be the one thrown in jail. My fans should be free to do what they want." He completely like nailed all the talking points. He's like 17 at the time right, or something. Right. Nailed all the talking points. In the meantime, Justin Bieber's robo lawyers, like these folks who you kind of hire on contract to just sue anyone who uses your name in anything we're in the process of suing us and we hadn't responded to it yet and we're like working on our press release bieber sues us you know mm-hmm. um and uh and then someone sends us this link to this radio interview that had happened like the night before that somehow we miss and we listen to it and our jaws drop so it's like hold the presses <laughs> and so that was that and 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 then later we ended up developing the campaign in a much more serious and sincere way to inform the public about what these laws meant to organize people around a big day of action that we called American Censorship Day that got like big sites like Tumblr and um, and Boing Boing and Mozilla and Reddit involved in fighting the legislation that was on the table. And then that snowballed into this really epic giant day of action that Wikipedia and basically every site on the internet that you know was known in any way participated in to stop um, in the 11th hour right before the vote was about to happen in the Senate. <clears throat> to stop um to stop SOPA and PIPA. And, and, this it worked. Was, and this was just like a couple of months between sort of being like, oh no, this is coming down. Maybe this Justin Bieber thing will work to like <laughs> total victory. Yeah, yeah. We total victory. I don't know. There's let me let me talk to somebody else who knows about total victory. Hank Stoltz, how are we doing on time? Do we need to cut away soon? Two minutes. All right. Oh well I, I What can you squeeze into two minutes, Holmes? I don't know. Me, I mean me, I, I let let me let me let me start you off by asking the first non-t-shirt based question, which should just sort of be like, how did you, how do you, how do you get, how do you get to the point where you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what I'm going to do professionally is I'm going to become like an internet digital civil liberties activist. How does that happen? Um, well, for me, the way it worked, and I think this is probably true for a lot, for a lot of people who get into stuff like this, is they read the newspaper for a while and they saw a certain debate, well, I read the newspaper a lot growing up. I mm-hmm. delivered the newspaper here in Worcester. Mm-hmm. I read the newspaper a lot as a result of delivering it. Um, and in the late nineties, I was still reading the newspaper a lot. And as Napster and these things were getting shut down or as like, there were these different clashes between things on the internet and, and, um, existing laws and institutions. And I was always really unsatisfied with how the debate went. It mm. kind of seemed like whatever I considered to be my side was just getting steamrolled in the press yeah. by, by the lobbyists and the shills and the, the, the sort of spokespeople for these big media companies that were trying to protect their turf. And um, and the folks on the Internet side of things who had a really valid argument in a bunch of ways were making really weak arguments most of the time and just mm. getting destroyed. 
And so it just started making me mad. You know, you get that kind of like throwing stuff at the TV feeling where you're saying the things you wish they would say. And you hear that voice in your head trying to kind of make the argument the best way you can. And eventually, since the Internet, you say, well, screw it. I'm going to make a Web page about this. So a friend and I, we made a Web page about something about um, about the the narrative about about music and the music industry around the time that the major record labels were just preparing to start suing um, suing individual fans for downloading music and, um, and and about iTunes, which was kind of hailed as the grand alternative, the grand bargain or something. And we made a site about it and um, just kind of laying out how we felt and what we thought the arguments were and being a bit tongue in cheek, but being pretty, pretty serious. And the site went viral and um, and had an amazing reception. This was, and so we built an organization around it. Essentially, mm-hmm. the organization was called Downhill Battle, and um, and yeah, that's how I got sucked in. You, I, I heard that voice in my head that needed to say something that wasn't being said. A friend and I made a website. It went really, really well. And then once something goes well on the internet, it kind of you kind of start to get this feeling like, okay, this is what I should be doing. Speaking of things going well on the internet, we'll be back after these important messages on 508. This is the water and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye and dark within. And this is Michael Benedetti on 508, a show about Worcester. And this is Brendan Malikin. Hi, Brendan. How's it going, Mike? Hey, I just wanted to point out real quick to the uh, listening <laughs> you audience. You just here. broken my spell. Totally broke your spell. The, uh, yeah, we managed to get the camera back online. We managed to get our headphones back in. Uh-huh. Is there anything else that uh, you, we broke, you, you foreseen we've, might be going sideways we've tonight? Of, that we've I can... sort of rebooted every piece of technical equipment during the show today. If there's something else of... that you want to point out, might go sideways. I'll take care of it now if you want. This is Holmes Wilson. And how are you doing, Holmes? <laughs> doing great. You were just telling the story of um, you were just telling the story of starting downhill battle. Uh, who who was the who was the person who you made the website with for that initially? I was Nicholas Revel, uh-huh. who I went to high school with here in Worcester, and and then soon afterwards another friend of ours, Tiffany Chang, mm-hmm. joined us. Um, and Tiffany and I uh, ended up being the f- co-founders of Fight for the Future. So downhill battle <clears> went <throat> went relatively pretty well, from my perspective as somebody who was not really involved with downhill battle at the time. And then you did that for a while, and then you moved on to other projects for a few years. Yeah, and then and then it came back around to feeling. Did it did it just feel like now is the time to do this with a different name, or it was more that it was more that we we were doing this um this kind of activism where we were less focused on like just building an email list or or um you know kind of being an organization and more just focused on straight output, just making things that would change the debate about mm-hmm. the, these these issues and kind of getting in there and saying what needed to be said. And um, and we were using humor and we were doing it creatively in a way that really worked with the internet. And when we stopped doing it to go work on other things, we worked on these open source software projects for distributing media and for participating in government Right. Um, that were more like, okay, let's do activism by building tools instead of doing it ourselves. We, um, we, we, we felt like oh, there was kind of this hole that had been left where there wasn't the same kind of voice, that same kind of provocative voice that we developed right. talking about these issues and shifting the debate. And some other folks felt that way too. In the space, I think that was, you know, people kind of had that like nostalgia for the days when Downhill Battle was putting out crazy fun campaigns on things. Right. Like, I, I mean, one of the one of the things that you did around copyright involved uh, the great what was that? What was is Eyes on the Prize? That great uh, documentary series about the civil rights movement. Yeah, that was a really interesting and campaign. You but had, you had a big campaign around like getting people to like have illegal public screening. I mean, illegal, but just because of 
weird copyright things, or public screenings of this show. I mean, just like, again, like very creative things that are not like the first 20 things you would think of at the top of your head of how to lobby Congress around this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and so um, so there was this gap that was left, and we actually started a conversation with this um, amazing foundation called the Media Democracy Fund about mm-hmm. potentially filling that gap in some way. And at first it was maybe like, well, maybe we could help some folks get started doing this. Then we were like, hey, this would be fun. Let's just do this ourselves. Um, we weren't sure how long it would go for or what form it would take. But we kind of wanted – Fight for the Future was essentially a bet that we could – start an organization that there was enough need for something like this that they, we could quickly prove our value and also um, quickly mobilize a group of people around us that would also see that and would be interested in supporting it and you know by their donations and stuff like that or by participating in our campaigns yeah. and that we'd be able to get something off the ground and the amazing thing about SOPA was we went from some folks in Worcester talking about making a website in August of 2011 to in January of 2012, just a few months later, having defeated this massive, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of lobbying effort, six or 10 years of, of lobbying work by, by some of the biggest media companies in America and the biggest drug companies in America, trying to pass a law that would have let them and really any copyright holder and the U.S. government censor the Internet. Um, and that, that, that was considered guaranteed to pass and that in ended up passing in most countries in, in or in many countries in Europe and Asia, we were able to stop that law from passing in the US. We were able to just stop it in its tracks in a way that nobody thought was possible. And the end result of that has been that, you know, if you're in if you're in Spain right now, there's a lot of websites where you type in a website that you go to every day and it's just going to be blocked in Spain. There'll be some dumb message from the Spanish government that says you can't go to this website anymore. That's true in the UK, that's true in a ton of places. In the US, that is not true. And it um and the reason why it didn't happen in the U.S. was because of this victory that we were able to organize on SOPA. And so it, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I mean, um, we were talking about this a little bit in the break, but uh, growing up in Worcester, I think, you know, it's a city where almost like I think all small cities in America, especially ones that are neighbors to very large metropolises, there's kind of a constant brain drain, like constant like a brain drain exactly, but an ambition drain where a lot of folks who want to kind of take on the world and express themselves, end up almost having to move to to bigger cities. Sure. Like they kind of end up filtering out of the city in this this way to go on to these sort of bigger battles. And the amazing thing about the role the internet played in my life, and this is part of one of the this is one of the big reasons why I like fighting for the internet generally as a as a medium and as a thing, is that um, <clears throat> is the internet made it so that we could so that me and and Tiffany and, and Nicholas and and others that we worked with here in Worcester could take on these issues without ever having to do that. I mean, we were we were fighting a legislative battle right at, you know, toe-to-toe with some of the best lobbyists in the world, and we never moved to D.C. I mean, we'd go to D.C. for meetings and stuff like that, but we never moved to D.C. We were able to stay here and do it from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting. And when you think about it, um, the, this new yeah. ability to just kind of live the life you want but but tangle with the, the biggest problems you wanted to tangle with. I wanted, I wanted to talk about what is maybe my um the best the the best unexpected surprise that i saw in national news so far this year is this article which i hope comes true to pa- comes to pass this was um in uh, in is this in in gadget ars technica it's called why mickey mouse's 1998 copyright extension probably won't happen again by timothy b lee and this the perpetual extension of copyright 
is one of these battles like SOPA that people on the internet, people on Slashdot, people on Boing Boing have been complaining about for 20 years now. And it's like every time, it's like Congress is going to pass some dumb internet law. Let's organize against it. We organize against it. Of course, Congress passes the dumb law. Congress is going to extend copyright again just so that Mickey Mouse doesn't go out of copyright, even though literally George Washington would have said that Mickey Mouse should be out of copyright by now. Mm -hmm. Literally Ben Franklin who I think in some yeah. cartoons may have had Mickey Mouse living in his basement. No, because they were they were super <laughs> allergic to patents. The founders of the of, of the United States were were pissed about the way the the the, the crown or whatever the, the way England was using its patent system to oppress yes. authors in the U.S. and to, to mess with them. And so they were all about a really really radical stance on patents and copyright. Right, they're having about having a functional system, but a functional system, not a system that allows you to say I invented Mickey Mouse a million years ago. I don't have to do anything ever again. It was to say, listen, you invented Mickey Mouse a million years ago. Make a ton of money off of Mickey Mouse. God bless you. And then yeah. uh, you know, a generation down the line, maybe Mickey Mouse is just something everybody can use because that's how culture functions. But so this is a, this extension is a thing that people, they make these, I mean, you know, Milton Friedman, like these grand economists from the right, right, like spoke up against saying like, you know, like this is the dumbest thing in the world, these copyright extensions, right? Um, but yet this this part of the argument never could get any traction. Whereas here we have an argument saying why it won't happen again. And why won't it happen again, according to Timothy B. Lee? Why is it that why is it likely that a year from now uh, every book, film, and song published in nineteen ninety in 1923 will fall out of copyright protection, something that hasn't happened in 40 years? At least that's what will happen if Congress doesn't retroactively change copyright law to prevent it, as Congress has done two previous times. Um, and why is this? The answer is because the fight over after, – after the SOPA fight, Hollywood likely knows the public would fight back, wrote Daniel Nazer, an attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in an email to ours. I suspect that big content knows it would lose the battle and is smart enough not to fight. I mean I feel like not only have Fight for the Future been a part of these battles that have won things like, at least for a while, net neutrality, uh, you know, SOPA – all these other battles to like change the playing field so that some battles that would have happened just the battle doesn't even happen. You win before you start. I mean, hopefully this yeah. comes to pass and there's not some s sneaky copyright extension, but it's, it's an amazing thing to read this instead of reading an article that says, of course it's going to pass to say, of course it's not going to pass. Well, no, that's a real dynamic. I mean, sometimes you can win so hard that you make any attempt to redo that thing look almost ridiculous or laughable. Mm -hmm. That's what happened with SOPA. Um, we won so hard that it was just considered toxic or a joke to try to think about passing a site blocking law in the U.S. Um, and and that held for most of the Americas, actually. Although now there's an effort underway in Canada. They're fighting mm -hmm. site blocking legislation now in Canada. Um, you know, so these things do come back and they have a cycle. But, yeah, you can win really hard in a way that lasts. And more than that, I think you can give people hope. And that's the biggest thing that we did with SOPA, I think, was we gave people in some ways, it was the first very palpable example, at least for most Internet users, the first real example of having a bill that everyone considered guaranteed to pass that was also simultaneously extremely unpopular, and then actually using that unpopularity to defeat the bill. It was against massive, massive corporate support. Mm -hmm. That was like not something that had ever happened in the Internet space. And um, or, well... It had never happened at that scale and in, in, in that kind of visible way. And so it was an amazing story for everyone of just like, whoa, we, can, we can't always do this. Like, it's hard. It's still hard. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we can do this. Like, we can win. 
we can win. We yeah. can win in a big way, right? Yeah. So, like, like you said, like you don't it doesn't mean you can't always win. But going from we always lose, but we lose in a dignified I mean, not a dignified way, yeah. like we lose in an undignified way. Like we always lose, and at least we're gonna fight because at least that's the right thing to do. You go from like you should fight because it's the right thing to do, but guess what? You also might win. Yeah, exactly. And and that's it was a lot of the work we did on on. I don't know. A lot of the fight for the future work we did was really influenced by the book um, Black Swan by uh, Nassim Taleb. Yeah, Nassim Taleb, and and his whole idea is like in life, you don't really know what's going to happen. Anyone who says they know what's going to happen is full of well, is full of it. Um, and and so your best bet is always to create a kind of floor, like do stuff where the worst case scenario is, eh, you gave it a good shot. But also do it in a way where the best case scenario is, if everything goes your way, you actually create some explosive new set of circumstances that totally changes the playing field and just guarantees a victory for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of approach that we took to to fight for the future is make sure that all of our campaigns have a floor in terms of how well they'll do, but that they never have a ceiling in terms of how well they'll do. And that's mm-hmm. really important, I think, when you're working in politics these days, because the Internet is constantly, constantly changing how politics happens in ways that are mostly invisible until all of a sudden they are visible. Mm-hmm. And and the internet is always making um, collective action more possible, more fruitful. And you never, ever know what's going to work the next time around because the, the ground is always shifting on our under our feet in ways that, that give an advantage to the grassroots. We have, we have two minutes in this section. Did you want to say something, Brendan? I always want to say something, Mike, but I didn't want to interrupt you or, oh. or Holmes. No, no, but, I, you know... What you were just getting at, I think this is what blows me away. And, and we've talked about this before privately as small groups and whatnot that um, – and, and you're always very humble about this and, and acknowledge the the massive number of people who have been involved with all of the activities that you've been involved with. But the reality is that you've got this small group of people from Worcester who have kind of been the tip of the spear for this, like, massive undertaking that is, is almost been revolutionary in terms of the way people organize and affect change uh, online and using that as a medium – and I find it to be the most potentially inspiring thing as a just a Worcester story alone, never mind the impact that has been felt globally, that that originated from here. Because I feel like that's just one of those things that as a, as a local, like we don't give ourselves enough credit for. I mean, at the beginning of the show, we were talking about how we, we have elected officials that look at a, a budget sur- uh, shortfall with public transportation and the response is, well, there's some stuff. Our hands are tied. You know, like, but here's a bunch of yeah. People there, that... There's laws in the way. How could we as politicians ever change a law? <laughs> we know nothing about that. But here's this thing that like is probably you know it's hard to judge things in, the, in in their value in real time, but over time will probably be looked back upon by whoever functions as internet historians and say, yeah, like this was the moment where like people actually yeah. carved out territory, and that happened here. Well, I mean, there's reasons for it. Like, for in my case, there are some really good schools here, mm-hmm. uh, Mass Academy of Math and Science amazing school where they just taught us how to like look at systems and look at and find their levers and pull their levers but also just like Worcester's an amazing place to have a chill life and to focus on the things that you care about and And I think we all know that but at the same time we don't oftentimes as collectively give ourselves credit for what we're our potential and what we're capable of we throw around words like potential as though they mean something on their on their own but rarely do we actually put that potential into motion (laughs) in a way that you know really has a lasting impact and it's yeah, that's all. I've just every time we have conversations about what you've done and what you do and the people around you do continue to do, I can't help but feel it's it's long term just one of the best Worcester stories we actually yeah. have as part of our collective narrative. 
Well, speaking of our collective narrative, Hank, do we want to take a phone call or do we want to go to a break first? Let's All right. take a call. We've got, we've, got a, we've got a caller. This always goes great. Caller, hi. hi. Hey, great. Hey, how's it going? I'm glad to be on the show. You're on the radio. Yeah, Do you have some thoughts around net neutrality and um, something about activism or something, maybe? I'm a big fan. Big, 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 big net neutrality fan. Keep it up. Keep it neutral. That's what I always say. Keep the net awesome. totally neutral. <laughs> terrific. And, terrific. Um, yeah, hey, th- thanks for calling in. Uh yeah. That was another. That was another great, great call. call. Well, it's. I mean, this is the amazing thing about these issues is it's just everybody like the the amount of public support for an internet that works well and where everything just kind of makes sense and where no one's messing with you, whether it's a government or your cable company or one of the big internet companies, is just so universal that when you go out there and like and try to work on this stuff, it's amazing how many how that th- th- support is everywhere you turn. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, just to go back to your point before, I think Worcester's, well, one of the greatest, as an activist who does stunts, one of the greatest activist stunts ever, right, is Abby Hoffman throwing dollar bills off the off the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, he's from Worcester. There's a tradition of that kind of stuff here. You and I have had this conversation in the past, and I hope to do this someday, but my, my plan at some point when I'm bored and maybe really, really wealthy is I... I have this. I've had this idea for a one-man show that captures the revolutionary history of Worcester, going back to when it was the village of Quinsigamond. Because if you really, you can almost look at every generation from the village of Quinsigamond being burnt down to today, and find a generation where there was really a massive social change or uprising that originated oddly here in Worcester. Uh, you know, General Gage wouldn't come anywhere near the village of Quinsigamond because of all the crazy farmers that you know, wouldn't give up their guns when the folks in Boston were like, you no, know, pushing their cannons into the harbor just to keep the British at bay, right? I mean, it's, we ran the Ku Klux Klan out of out of town in the 20s only because the Irish and Italian Catholics that historically wanted nothing to do with each other <laughs> came together over this common enemy. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Abby Hoffman, who's probably the most locally infamous uh, activist because Worcester has always had a weird relationship with him. But really, every generation, I know I left out a few generations there, but <laughs> we're, just, we're going up to a break here. Big moments in the women's movement, big moments in the labor movement happened here. Um, I mean, there are even a couple of stories about ice cream shops that involved are, just a massive are. revolutionary <laughs> Emma <laughs> Goldman and Alexander Bergman planned their ill-fated assassination attempt of Henry Frick in Worcester. Uh, we're going to a break. We'll be back. This is 508, a show about Worcester. Thrill of a lifetime. Get your tickets and come in. Killers of the Amazon. Can devour a cow in a matter of seconds. Can leave nothing but the bare bones. Ladies and gentlemen, you know that I'm talking about Brendan Mellican and Holmes Wilson, as well as myself, Michael Benedetti, on 508, a show about Worcester. The call-in number is 508-471-5265 if you would like to be on the radio. Holmes Wilson. We have like a minute left. (laughs) You say something profound. It's okay. you're, yeah. not a, you're not on the spot. Why, 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 why Worcester? Why is Worcester? Why Worcester, man? I think it's. I have a. I have a. I have an explanation. I think I have a working explanation for this, which is that um, I don't know. There's that like what that that story plays in Peoria or something like that from from Hollywood, where they would test they would test out films in um, in a very unassuming city, and the reason why they do that is because the reactions that people you know, if you're if you're in a metropolis like L.A. or New York or, or especially with politics in Washington, D.C., the type of conversation that you're 
participating in is so non-representative of the types of conversations that most people are going to have that it just gets under your skin and you lose totally your ability to talk about anything in a real way. So like most people who work in DC 24 seven, I think are facing this really terrible handicap when it comes to politics where they just, they might know the issues inside and out, but they cannot talk about the issues to anyone outside of DC because their whole vocabulary and sense of reality has been totally swayed by what's essentially a gossip mill sure. of, of people who work on politics all the time. And so if you're in a place like Worcester, you know, there's like education here and transportation here and nice place to live and it's pretty chill and whatever. But we are not in that gossip mill at all. So if you have a conversation about politics with someone, you're having a conversation with like most people, mm -hmm. essentially. Most people in the country you're having a conversation with because you're not just like caught up in some bubble. And so I think Worcester, working from Worcester on political issues has always been an amazing asset to us because we're able to kind of take a fresh look at political issues and about the way people are talking about them and just kind of talk about it in a direct way and say what things are. SOPA was a censorship bill. If we were in DC, we want, we probably would not have come up with that insight for how to talk about it because it would have been just harder to see through all the gossip. And, and, and Worcester gave us a degree of critical independence and freshness and, and reality, I think, um, if we're doing politics, that that was just invaluable for for the stuff that we work on. We're kind of running short on time, but I, a question that I think you can answer probably yes or no. If you're from Worcester, you've spent most of your time here in Worcester, but you've obviously traveled a lot. If all of your activism, um, if you've decided in your early 20s, whatever, to move to New York, L.A., D.C., focus there, do you think you could have accomplished the same things, or do you think it's more likely that those well-moneyed uh, organizations you were fighting against probably would have found a way to squash you? Right? Like, is, is no, there something I wouldn't have been able to accomplish anything. I would have been I would have been able to barely accomplish paying my rent. Yeah, okay. No, that's really... And <laughs> Joe. No, no, that's no, really, really what I was looking for. I mean, because it's... Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost something weird, I think, where you can organize and be an activist in a city like Worcester at scale, but because you're here, you're almost off the radar. You're, you almost <laughs> don't exist, right? I mean, it's like who's paying we're ghosts. Yeah, we who's... joke about how we're ghosts sometimes. You're not. No one's paying attention to you unless they're listening to 508, a show about Worcester on Worcester's Unity Radio. Our email address is pieandcoffee at gmail.com. Holmes Wilson, Brendan Malikin, and Mike Benedetti, thanks for all of you being on the show this week. Thanks for listening, Wilson. Well, thank, Hank Stoltz, thank you for being a hero as usual. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.